to me that's what a storyteller needs to be. It's somebody that is, it's not about, like you say, it's not about you ever. It's about taking the other person on an adventure somewhere new so they're able to look back on their own lives with a fresh perspective. Raise 1000 Voices is the podcast on a mission to raise the voices of the clever, creative and courageous women across the world. I am your host, Jacqueline Nagel, and I invite you to join me in conversations with women who will inspire and empower you as we explore just how to lift our levels of self-trust, to reclaim the narrative and to use our voice to go after exactly what we want, doing it with strength, power and grace. Zara Love is the director of Great Talk and also one of my superhumans, which you are about to find out why. The official bio supports her superhuman status, growing up in comedy clubs, holding number one position on breakfast radio, speaking around the world for more than two decades, delivering not one but two TEDx talks, and singing on stages from lyric opera to an international sporting event beamed to millions of viewers. Zara has created a children's animation series seen in more than 90 countries and translated into more than 16 languages. She has more than 10,000 appearances across stage, radio and screen to a collective audience of more than 10 million people. So there's the headlines. The Zara you are about to meet shares the magic behind those headlines. She is passionate about storytelling, about the overabundance of seriousness in our world, and just how humour creates safety for audiences in the midst of big and confronting stories. Even knowing Zara, you will hear me spontaneously laughing at what she brings to the table. And then she underpins that humour with a love for moments and adventure, a recognition of our thirst for insights and truth, some quick bites and strategies that you can use immediately in your everyday speaking, and just how some of her greatest moments came from creating what she needed most in her own life. We have a fascinating few minutes discussing and going backwards and forwards between us about just what we can learn by listening to the five-year-old child we all have within. I know that Zara Love is about to become one of your favorite humans, and I am so grateful to bring her light into your world. So right now, I would love to welcome Zara Love to the next installment of Raise 1000 Voices, which I am so excited. Zara, you are one of my favorite humans on the planet. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Jacqueline. Aren't you gorgeous? Which voice am I? Am I 999? No, not yet. You're, you're actually in our launch series. You're in the first seven, which is really exciting. Ooh, yeah. yeah. Wanted to create a strong foundation and a strong vibe for the thousands. So, yes, you're in the launch series, darling. Well, I do have a strong voice, my darling. I'm told that I do have a strong voice. You do. You have an amazing voice. So tell me, tell me more about this quest that you're on before you ask me the questions. Tell me, tell me what you're doing, why you're doing it. I love this. You're flipping me already, flipping the script already. <laughs> so this is actually about, we will record a thousand episodes over the next few years. And it is all about finding the stories of women around the world who are ordinary and extraordinary and just unlocking those stories and, and giving voice to lived and worked experience. So, you know, women, as you know, are usually the last to speak up and speak out. And I want to actually throw a spotlight onto the great women around the world and their stories. Amazing. Amazing. I think for a lot of us, it's really connecting again with our true essence, our true self. Because I think that even when we do speak up, sometimes I question myself, you know, whose voice is that? Yeah. Where's that coming from? Yeah, have I learned that to protect myself? Are those wounds still real? Do I need to speak in that way? In fact, we, we've been watching The Crown at the moment. Ah, oh. Yeah, we're slow to it. I know everyone else has seen it, but we're really enjoying the program. And the Queen at one point comments on three questions that have really stayed with me, and they are, does this need to be said? Yeah. Does this need to be said now? does this need to be said by me? Yeah. And it's a really interesting little framework that allows you to stop and say to yourself, is this necessary that I speak up in this way now? Yeah. Or is there another way to do it? You know? So I think it's it's kind of 
getting in touch with, A, I've got a voice and I've got a right to be heard and I've got something to say, yes. But then the other side for me is which version of me yeah. is that voice connected to? Yeah, and is this the right time and place and space? And one of the one of the challenges that we have working with, as you know, I work with women who are just starting to find their voice, mm. right? And one of the challenges we have with unlocking that story is is getting people to a place where they understand not all stories are to be told. You know, some of the stories need to come out of your own mind and out of your own heart, but not all stories need to make it to a stage or to a platform. You've got to take control of what you want to share with the world. I mean, we're living in a world now where you're just expected to give it all. Show me your house. Yes. Tell me who you are. You know, I kind of want all of it. And there's real value in that. I love that, that we're a bit rougher, we're a bit rawer, we're a bit more real with each other, but we don't have to give it all away. And at the same time, we need to be comfortable with the healing or with the aspect of that story before we share it with the world anyway. Because if we're not comfortable and it goes out there, it tends to be a, uh, you know, not, not the impact that we were hoping for. Yeah, absolutely. And it's one of the things I work, walk the women through is until you can speak to this with strength, power and grace, it's not your story to tell. Yeah, because we've got to bring that to the forefront and, and, you know, and kind of part of what I want to do with this mission to raise a thousand voices is get people to understand that this is not, storytelling is not supposed to be something where you inflict harm on others, right? You know, and this whole, this whole rush to be real and raw plus digital has mean, mean that anybody can speak. We know that like, and some people really shouldn't. Anyone has the opportunity to speak, <laughs> to speak every day. But storytelling and story shaping is where connection is made and emotions are evoked and things like that. And the intention of storytelling and story sharing is not to inflict harm on others. You know, it's not to shock and awe to a place that creates damage. And we've got, you know, I've been to a lot of, we ran our own fundraising event yesterday, been to a lot of fundraising events recently. And one of the things I'm really passionate about is people with charities bring up these lived experience speakers to tell their story, to obviously to get us to open our wallets and to understand that this is a really important problem. But they're coming at it from a real raw place that is actually quite triggering to anyone who has a similar experience because they're just being raw and real, you know. Yeah, it's uncomfortable to hear a story that the person telling it isn't comfortable sharing, be that the person telling it isn't clear on their intention yeah. for telling that story also. And See, when the person telling it is clearly milking yeah. the story to create a behaviour yeah. in the audience. Now, all storytelling is to create a behaviour. It is to drive someone to become more motivated or to think about themselves in a different way or to believe in themselves or to try something new. It's always to kind of spark action yeah. of sorts, even yeah. if that's just mental action and thinking differently. But we've got to get really clear on what we're saying and how we're saying it, but also we don't have to tell a sad story in a sad way. No. That's something that we teach a lot is that you can take people to something really quite tragic, difficult to articulate. You can nearly have them on the edge of their seat crying and then land something that's hilarious yeah. that just allows them to go, oh, it's all going to be okay. Yeah. And you can move through the trauma, the hilarity quite comfortably if you have done the work on your story before you share it. I love that. And I know that this is something that you excel in in your current work. So you can give us a little bit more insight around how to do that. Like, you know, obviously the women listening to this won't be able to run off and do it themselves. So just some insight into how you get comfortable and how you can actually bring that light and shade into something that's quite traumatic or quite high impact is what I like to call it these days because high impact can also be a great story. So how do people actually start thinking about the fact that they can bring hilarity and humour into something that is actually quite dark and heavy? Yeah, well, a story that you mentioned it actually when we were just jumping on this call, my first TEDx yeah. Talk, which was the epidemic of over seriousness. And I know you wanted to raise it. So here I have done it for you. <laughs> Thank <Sure>. you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm loving it. Like, let's just run. <laughs> 
in that particular speech, I tell a story about my grandmother. Now, it's not a, a terribly traumatic story, but for me, it has some sadness to it. But in it, you'll notice that I go from serious to lighthearted to serious to lighthearted, serious to lighthearted. So I start by saying, you know, my nan, what an amazing woman. We lost her a couple of years back. She didn't die. She just wandered off, <laughs> which the audience do. Well, you did. So they all kind of laugh. Yeah. They go, oh, okay, this is going to be okay. Yeah. It's a story that we. it's okay to laugh, yeah? Yeah. And then I kind of come in and, and I say, actually, she did pass away a few years ago. She was 95, incredible integrity, great life, you know, and I went to visit her in hospital and I said, Nanny, are you scared of dying? And she said, no. And I said, not even a little bit? And she said, Zara, look how many people have done it. How hard can it be? (laughs) Yeah, see, there you go. And spontaneous laugh. (laughs) That's right. And she showed me in that moment that a good sense of humour is the one thing that you can have until your dying breath because if you can joke, you can cope. Now, I go on if I tell that story and I tell a few more funnies about Nan through that, but you can see how you can go from palliative care, she's passing away, and it's that critical moment. I ask a question that you're not supposed to ask anyone. Mm. Are you scared of dying at the critical moment in her life? And she handles it with great humour that reminds us, the audience, that A sense of humour is a superpower. It's the one thing that you can hang on to until your dying breath, but if you don't use it, you lose it. Yeah. And you do it in a story that's heartbreaking and funny. Yeah. And heartbreaking and funny and interesting and heartbreaking and shocking and funny. And you want to move through the story with all of those nuances. Yeah. You know, a great story should be like a great adventure. You know, it has great bits. It has awful bits. It has shocking bits. And my favourite quote is William Faulkner's, which is the only thing worth writing about is the human heart in conflict with itself. Mm. And it's just a beautiful quote because it reminds people that when we're telling stories, we're looking for the emotion, but it's not always just sadness. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we need balance of all of it. So when people, because you do work with so many people to really bring their stories together. And thankfully, I get to still work with you a little bit more to help my own storytelling. (laughs) But when people come to you, what are the challenges or what are the, I don't want to say mistakes, but what are the things they're not doing quite right when it comes to pulling their story together before they get the Zara effect? I think we all need a fresh perspective. I think it's really difficult to see your own stuff. I think that everybody wants to include everything all the time. Yeah. Yep, so they want to include every piece of information or insight that they've ever learnt or shared before and they want it to go in there because, yes, they want to give value, but also there's a fear there that what if I'm not enough? What if this information oh. is clear enough, good enough, you know? Yeah. Yeah, so a lot of the work that I do is really showing people that they're skipping over these beautiful moments that could be impactful for an audience and they can't see them. They're racing to the finish to get through the details and they're not showing me any of the adventure on the way. And so for me it's like what do we leave out first? So how do we Mm -hmm. strip it all back so that you've just got your core message there that you want to share? And then how do you kind of dig around the person's life, the stuff that they've put in the back room and go, no, it's irrelevant, I don't want to talk about that or it's not interesting? And then how do I convince them to pull those stories out, look at them, share them for the greater good? Yeah, absolutely. And it says what you have taught me so far in the work that are doing and what I landed with a keynote recently is it actually, you took me into one moment that I actually hadn't even been thinking about and now it's the main story in the keynote. Ah, beautiful. And so that to me is quite extraordinary. Yeah. Not from the point of view of, yes, I landed a keynote, but from the point of view of you do forget what actually matters and you do forget those moments because they're just part of your history. That's right. And so, yeah, so I really, really love that perspective. So, Zara, just storytelling and funny your voice and things like that, with particularly speaking to women here, what is it with women that you see trips them up from their ability to shape story, to share story, to speak up and to speak out, if you like? Mm, everyone's so uniquely different. Yeah. Every coaching session is so individual 
and so different to the next one for me. And I, I think, again, it's the trust that, that women need to trust that they have the insights. They need to trust that they can hold a stage and hold an audience in the palm of their hands. They have to trust that their stories are as valuable as anyone else's stories, but then they need to kind of find who they really are. You know, I was working with a, I won't name her because everyone does know who she is, but she was, she'd had a, been through a trauma and was talking about that trauma in this particular keynote. Now it was really hard to listen to this story. It was hard to look at this person at the, at the time. And so we made sure that the very start that we made it funny. Yeah. We made it funny because this person was naturally funny. Yeah. They were a naturally funny person talking about a trauma that was truly awful and difficult to, to sit through. And so we made sure that we honoured that human being. Mm. So we allowed the audience to have a laugh at the start and go, oh, it's going to be okay. <laughs> she can laugh at yeah. herself and we're okay. And then from that, she started to thrive as a speaker and audiences loved her as well. So I think it's honouring who you really are. Some people are very serious thinkers and that's okay. Bring that energy to the stage but infuse it with a deeper level of curiosity so that you're able to guide an audience to think in new and powerful ways. But I think honour who you are. There's very little difference between who I am talking to you in this podcast to who I am on stage speaking to an audience of a couple of thousand. There's not a big difference there. And I think that's the essence of being a successful storyteller is integrate, be who you know yourself to be and don't try to be anything else. You know, anytime I try and do something else, I fail at it. And anytime I go, you know what, I've got everything I need, I'm going to show up and give the love. You know, my name is Zara Love. I want to give the love. Yeah. It always works. Yeah. So you don't have to think that you're not. You just need to enhance what you are. And we often say that it's on stage or telling a story, it's you plus 25%. It's you and a bit. Yeah. Yeah. So you can feel that lift in the energy that says, I'm not just telling the story to a mate at a pub on a Friday when we're sharing it with an audience, there has to be a lift from within. It's like a spark goes off inside us that reminds us that we're not telling this story to hear our own voice. We're telling this story to unlock something in the person that's opposite us. I love that because one of the things that we we talk about quite a bit in, in what we do is telling stories is actually not about you. Telling stories is about creating trust and being in service to an audience. That's right. So I just had that reconfirmed by one of the best story coaches in Australia. So, <laughs> so I'm really quite delighted right now. It's all about me right now. So speaking about that, you know, and you do work with some formidable women, some phenomenal women. You have exposure to speakers around the world. From a women's speaking perspective, who do you think is an amazing storyteller? Like who comes to mind when you think about women who are incredible storytellers? Troy just pointed at me, so that was very nice of him. He's sitting over there. (laughs) That's my husband, by the way. Two women came to mind then, and I don't know if they're right in terms of answers, but often I say to my coaching clients, trust the first thing that comes to your mind. That's often right. Yeah. So the two that came to mind for me were Marianne Williamson, who ran for Senate, I think, in America. She's an American. She's a spiritual speaker. She created a program that was based on the course of uh, in miracles that was created in, I think, the 70s, a really hefty, intense document all about creating miracles in your life. And she created a program to kind of work your way through that text. But she's just a beautiful speaker. She's incredibly spiritual. She's very aligned. She's very driven. She knows what she wants. She tells great stories and she's able to stand on stage and just riff. Yeah. Yeah. So you can throw a question to her and 40 minutes later, she will have taken you on a journey through that. And the other one would be Esther Hicks. I don't know if you know anything of Jerry and Esther Hicks. Yeah, a little. Yeah, spiritual people, not keynoters necessarily, but they were a partnership. Esther started getting messages from beyond and the same thing. She stands on a stage and answers questions from an audience and for three hours answer questions like, why do we have colour? Or why am I scared every day? And she has these answers that are 
always enlightening, inspiring, and life-changing. To me, that's what a storyteller needs to be. It's somebody that is, it's not about, like you say, it's not about you ever. It's about taking the other person on an adventure somewhere new so they're able to look back on their own lives with a fresh perspective. Yeah, that's so powerful. That literally is the purpose of storytelling Mm -hmm. and that's why we respond to the most amazing storytellers in the world. So speaking about stories, we kind of, you know, you chose to make this your interview today. (laughs) Um, I'm going to flip it back to you just for a moment. Like we're talking about the fact that Zara you together with your husband do this incredible story coaching and speaking coaching across Australia and internationally. That's now. How did Zara Love get here? Like what's the five-minute story of Zara Love's life to this point? Yeah, well, I always wanted to be a singer and an actor when I was younger and that was certainly going to be my trajectory and I need to pick up the singing again. I've been very slack with that. But I went to acting college and I acted my way into that acting college. I was. (laughs) Love it. That's right. I was too young to be accepted, but it was pre-computers. So I lied and told them that I was two years older. I was only 15 when I auditioned. Uh, Mum had put me through school early, so I was also in grade 12, but I was younger than everybody else. So I just lied, told them that I was older. I didn't even take my paperwork to this audition. I was so slack. And so I acted that as well. And I said, I sent my paperwork and I can't believe you've lost it. And they said, oh, we're very sorry. (laughs) Feel free to audition. So I auditioned. I got in. I was the youngest person ever accepted. And I started working with theatre companies after college. My family opened a comedy club. And so I started performing in that comedy club, two-hour show, five nights a week. That's where I met Troy, my husband. He also worked that show. From that, we got offered a job in Breakfast Radio. We did that for four years, nearly five years, and became number one in our market and really loved that work, loved that job, but found it very toxic environment to work in at the time. Yeah, Uh, Troy's saying I I forgot about stand-up comedy on the way to radio as well. I was doing lots of stand-up comedy. And then we quit radio because we were miserable. We were earning a fortune. Yeah. Doing a job that we loved, that we loved, a job where we were number one. Yeah. And I was more miserable than I'd ever been in my entire life. It was just a very toxic environment. Yeah. So very critical, very toxic. We weren't welcomed there at all. And it was just I had no coping skills. So as a little people pleaser, you know, who wanted to make a difference in the world, suddenly there was harsh criticisms, not just from within, but opposing radio stations ran ads on air against me personally. Wow, that's an attack. It was an attack. So they're actually called attack sweepers. And every 15 minutes they'd run an ad about me. So on our radio show, I used to read Zara's Diary and they're all true stories, actually, that I would write every day, but they were true stories. So from my birth, in fact, I think it took me six weeks to come out of my mother's womb in our story and people would tune in every morning at 7am for these stories. And there was this saxophone that kind of started off the segment and I'd start with, dear diary, and then tell the story. Always funny, always a bit shocking. Yeah. And people got obsessed by the serial of it. So the station that was opposite us started running the same saxophone with, dear diary, are you sick of self-righteous, self-help? crap in the mornings listen to us wow so stuff like that that's direct but we had I had more skills had I had more coping skills I would view that as wow are they scared that's incredible that they have gone to that level of effort to undermine me and I don't care but at the time I was just crushed by it it was heartbreaking I didn't know what to do or who to speak to and there was no support so We gave them a year's notice, quit, and then went, I wonder if other people have lost their sense of humour like us. Like I grew up in a comedy club and here I am working for a job, earning a fortune and I'm miserable. Yeah. I mean, I thought other people must struggle too. So we started a company called Humour Australia and we believe that good humour is the thing that is the saving grace in life. And if you can master it and if you can use it regularly, it gives you perspective, it builds your relationships and it makes life wonderful. In fact, we started that business as the humour police and we used to crash conferences <laughs> yeah. you know, dressed as Sergeant Wayne Dipstick and Constable Chuckles. 
And we were all dressed up in police gear and we used to burst into conferences as the humour police and investigate the lack of humour that was happening in the workplace or at the conference and people loved it because it was character-based. Yeah. But we also got to talk about the importance of good humour for mental well-being, for resilience, for, you know, anything you need to get done. And then it kind of naturally evolved into great talk because Mm -hmm. we started to coach and become performance coaches and help other people to craft their stories. In fact, we ran a program called Stand Up For Yourself, which was the hybrid between the humour world and the straight talking world that I guess we're in now. And that program was where we coach executives to overcome their fear of public speaking by learning the art of stand-up comedy. Oh, amazing then they all perform in front of a live yeah. audience, a couple of hundred people they deliver stand-up routine about their own lives and it's to this day the most transformative program we run and it shows people that they can do anything mm. because they start the program going it's not in a million years I couldn't do this and then they end by going oh my goodness what else have I been telling myself that I can't do. Yeah. And it's interesting because we've just run a program with the Telstra team and that culminated in a showcase. With this one, we didn't call it stand-up comedy routine. We called them T-talks, which stands for, let's say, Telstra or timed talk. And at the end of it, 20 of their ambassadors got up at a beautiful theatre in Sydney and performed a five-minute thought leadership piece. And it was incredible. These are all people that stand in front of audiences comfortably talking about tech, but the one rule we gave them was you're not allowed to talk about tech. I love that. It's the people that we want to hear about. And I sat at the back of the room the same way I do with Stand Up For Yourself with, you know, goosebumps and tears in my eyes because they were so insightful, so inspiring, so powerful standing on that stage. And I went, well, you know, humor's good, but it's not everything. In fact, what we're looking for more than anything is insights and truth. Yeah, truth, standing in truth. Yeah, and the story behind the story, you know, there's one gentleman there that everyone knows and no one would have known his backstory, and that was that he grew up in Sri Lanka, he grew up in a civil war, he went to school every day dodging bombs. He One day his house was blown up, they had to look after 25 people in the neighbourhood all under another roof for many months. You know, these are stories that here I am just meeting a tech specialist. Yeah who's going to help me to do my digital transformation. But the story behind the story is this guy is fascinating and has endured so much. And when I know more about that human, I'm more likely to listen to what he has to offer. Yeah. I think stories are the fastest way to see somebody else. Oh, totally. You know, there's a colleague that you and I both have, Cam Colcan from New Zealand, and he talks about stories are how we bend reality and shift perception. Right. And I really love that. And that's what you're talking about with with that particular story there. So as part of this evolution that you've done, you also made the choice, and you mentioned it before, to do a TEDx talk. Can you take me through the lead into that and what really mattered? Because I know we had a conversation quite some time ago about this. Like what led you to that moment of going, actually, this is what my next move is, and why did that matter to you? Well, I think it was based in that I was still in the trauma of leaving a job that I loved that I thought I would be in forever, you know, that I would be just going from strength to strength and doing forever. And so I was just so miserable and I couldn't work out how to make myself better, happier, how to see it differently. I knew that it was me that was dealing with it in a bad way, but I just could not lift my spirits to be able to see it differently. And so the humour element of the epidemic of over-seriousness came from the fact that I started investigating that I wasn't the only one that was suffering or that was struggling, you know, to keep their head above water or to see the lighter side of life. And people often see me and think positivity is an easy thing or, you know, your life is easier or you don't understand pain and trauma. But I actually think positive people choose it. Yeah, You know, I chose humour and levity and lightness because I needed it to be able to keep moving forward. And so that TED Talk came from the fact that I was miserable and that I started investigating and I found out that other people were. I mean, the stats have gone up for depression and suicide and and anxiety and all of those things in our society. And so I wanted to remind people that we're humans yeah, and that if we can connect in a human way, we're going to get a whole bunch more done. You know, we 
we're so lucky. We end up in beautiful boardrooms all over Australia and the world. And the amount of times that people will sit us down, you know, if we're coaching their exec or their leader or whatever, or hosting their conference, they'll sit us down and get straight into work. Okay, let's look at the agenda. This is what we're doing today and this is what we're trying to cover. And we would always be super subversive in those environments and try and throw them off track. What a gorgeous view this is. Do you ever stop and take a look over Sydney Harbour here? I ever thought of doing tours out of your boardroom? Do anything that would take them away from let's get down to business. Yeah. So we could connect on a human level. In fact, a friend of mine used to call it the one, two, three thing of me and we used it at our comedy clubs and it was Anything that you've got to talk to somebody about, throw in two unrelated stories or conversations first. So everyone knew we were doing it all the time, but it said the people are more important. So it might be, hey, that's the new hairdo, right? I'm sure on Friday you had red hair, now it's blonde. It looks great. Love it. Where'd you get it done? Didn't you say you were going to the footy on Saturday? Who won? Was it a good game? Beautiful. Hey, by the way, the kitchen's on fire. Can you do something about that? (laughs) So the third thing is down to business. It's what we are here to cover. The first two are really quick to move through, but Mm -hmm. it's reminding people that the people matter. It's not just the work. It's the people doing that work. So the TED Talk was because I believed in humour wholeheartedly, and I believe that we were in a world where we were just on the treadmill and we were racing and we were racing. You know, I think pre-COVID, yeah. we were all in that same boat where it felt like, oh, my goodness, there's so much going on and it's like we've hit the ground running in January and here we go. And I remember feeling a little like, oh, can we just slow the world down a little bit? Yeah, and be careful what you ask for, right? Yeah, yeah. So this is actually you wished this into being. <laughs> I, did I did it all. I'd like to apologise, but I take full credit. <laughs> Yeah. But maybe yeah. we can find a sweet spot yeah. between the two. And I think that is what we're finding at the moment. We're going, you know what? Yeah. My lifestyle matters. My family matters. My sanity matters. And so we're starting to draw lines in the sand that say, I won't do that or I will do yeah. this. Yeah, we're getting clear on who we are and what we want. Yeah, absolutely. When it comes to, you know, you're a big believer in humour and the motivations for doing the TED Talk, what is it that actually, when it comes to storytelling, speaking up, speaking out, what is it that still breaks your heart? Listening to a story or developing somebody else's story? Both. Like what comes up for you and probably developing someone else's story because you're actually guiding and coaching and mentoring people and actually trying to, you're really trying to be the light that pulls them out of their darkness, right? Yeah. For the storytelling. So what is it that still breaks your heart when you are working with someone to develop their story? Breaks my heart. This really. If I was listening to a story, I think my answer would be anything that has a human being overcoming, you know, monumental challenges. Anything where yeah, someone's yeah. overcoming something, you know, drastic and epic and does it. And anyone that speaks with kindness is someone that breaks me up every time. Anytime I see kindness in a story or someone acting with kindness, it just gets to my heart every time. I think with clients, it's them doubting their own ability. And I think the only thing that breaks my heart is them maybe not doing the work. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, like <laughs> we get very clear on this is what you need to do, but it's work. Storytelling is hard work. I, I think people think that it's just natural. You know, you go and see a comedian like Jerry Seinfeld and you go, oh, I could never do that. That's easy. You go and see him a second night and you realise that he's delivering a script and every joke is exactly the same. And then you kind of go, hang on a second, I feel ripped off. He's doing all the same stuff. But that's what storytelling is. It's artistry, it's mastery, it's work. Jerry Seinfeld is somebody that, and a joke is really just a little story, Yeah, is somebody that works on taking a word out of a joke over a few weeks just to see if it lifts the laugh count mm. ever so slightly. So it's hard work to craft something up that becomes remarkable and then you've got to do runs on the board you've got to deliver it multiple times before it anchors in your body and gets really comfortable but I think more than heartbroken I'm always inspired by the people that we coach always because Mm -hmm. every single person has something that is remarkable and worthy Mm -hmm. of sharing with the world that I haven't heard in that way before so when I'm first working with someone it's a bit like the I don't know what just popped in my brain, but you know the crawl under the news and you see all the other news stories that are going on. So yeah. they're talking and I'm listening and then all of a sudden they'll share something and I'll go, ah, stop, tell me more about that. That's the sweet spot of you. And so 
my job is really to connect their hearts and their souls with their mouths and their brains and find this place of easiness where the stories just fall out of their mouths or they happen to just be in their back pocket that they haven't thought about for a little while. So I say, hey, what if you just pull that out? Let's have a look at that for a second, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. What makes a remarkable story? I think it's a story that has everything. Mm -hmm. You know, we often describe it like a great story should be you're grabbing me by the hand and you're taking me on a wild adventure. It's an Mm -hmm. adventure into a place that I've never been before, but because you're holding my hand, I feel like I'm standing there with you in this moment of time, as you jump out of the plane, as you climb to the top of the mountain, as you're being taken in to surgery. And vicariously, I get to experience that with you. And it makes me feel like I'm part of this story. And a great story, I believe, has lots of insights for the audience. You know, the old school Mm -hmm. way of delivering keynotes used to be, I'm going to talk at you 35 minutes, then the last five minutes I'm going to tell you the takeouts, you might write them down, I'll say thanks, you'll go away, do nothing, that's the way it is. The new way is if I've got 40 minutes in front of an audience or 20 or 10 or 5 or whatever, I'm going to stuff that to the brim with value, insights, Mm -hmm. things that people can think differently about. I'm going to grab them by the collar and I'm not going to let them off the hook because there could be something here that is life-changing if they want to hear it, but again, needs to be equal parts entertainment as much as it is insight. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's the, the entertainment muscle is the one that I'm constantly trying to build. So, and I think a lot of people, when they're coming from a lived experience perspective, they actually forget to entertain unless they are naturally funny. Yeah, that's right. Naturally funny brings it through. Yeah. So true. And we all entertain with our friends. You know, people think when I say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm not that person. I don't want to be on stage doing all of that. No. Be who you are with your best friend. Yeah. Because who you are with your best friend is your true self. They see you in all yeah. your disgustingness. They love you. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. They kind of bring out the true you. You can be yourself around them. That's the person that I encourage our speakers to take to the stage. I love that. Yeah. Bring your whole self. Yeah. And be the person that your best friend sees. Yeah. Because who you are with that person is who you really are. Yeah. Yeah, really love that. So, like, when you actually see someone come onto the stages, you know, as they show up with their best friend, you actually really resonate, you fall in love with them, it's human, you connect with them. You know, Zara, you do so much work. Who is it that inspires you from a storytelling perspective, from a voice perspective? Who actually inspires you? Do you know, I, I can't limit it to one. I just, I'm surrounded by books and wisdom and you know I've got two in front of me at the moment that I'm really loving which is my abundant universe and Mm -hmm. love from a beautiful orator and storyteller Anna Bartz now I've Mm -hmm. never seen her live but her writing and her storytelling is just magnificent and I love it and she brings it all together with her art so she's integrated what she loves to do with spiritual insights and delivers it in kind of a workbook kind of way so it's tangible and you can take in one idea at a time. Yeah. But, again, there's no one human being. I'm inspired, but I've just gotten off a call with, you know, somebody who helps turn brokers into millionaires. And, I mean, that's fairly dry concepts that you need to create. And yet his backstory is fascinating. Yeah. You know, so, so how do you draw more of that out? to make it a more human exchange. Yeah, absolutely. So you just mentioned books, so you're a book, you're book mad. I'm book, a book and audio and podcast. Troy and I often love it. In fact, daily we choose a podcast, we start it together, we go for an hour walk and we listen to it and then we can reflect on it or have a chat about it and it's just a great way to learn. Yeah. So what's your go-to book? If you had to talk about go-to books, what are the ones that you would always want to be able to put your hands on? Uh, Troy just handed me my book, our book. <laughs> what is enough? <laughs> yeah, what is enough, our kids' book for grown-ups. That's definitely one that I would go to because it's in the style of Dr. Zeus and it's one of those ones that when you're having a bad day, 
you just need to read it or have someone read it to you and the magic is released. So that would definitely be that. Let me look at what I've got. Everything's storybooks over here at the moment. Yeah. So it's either psychology. I, I go to psychology because storytelling is inherent in psychology. Mm-hmm. You know, we talk about the fact that all happiness and success comes down to two stories, the stories that you tell yourself and the stories that you choose to share with others. Yeah. You master those two stories and you master humanity. Yeah. Yeah, so you start challenging the stories that you tell yourself about your own limiting beliefs or even the other way, maybe you're grandiose and think you're awesome and you need to challenge that. (laughs) Yeah, you need to challenge just how good you are. It's interesting you say that because we now, the first two months of working with people, we now actually go after their inner voice, their internal narrative. We actually identify, redefine and reclaim the internal narrative first and that's all story-based. Of course it is. But how, how do you narrow that down? There's so much there. Mm, there is and so many voices so many voices yeah and and they're the voices that are your own and the voices you've taken on from other people as well like that's the really interesting part most of it's not even your own voice exactly I've got a mind I look fairly calm but I've got a mind that I worry so there's a you know I'm a up at night and that kind of stuff so I'm always finding ways to just relax my brain and I've never known where it comes from mum's not like that dad's passed so I don't know that he was like that and I didn't know anyone else in my family other than my auntie. So the other day I said to her, well, I feel like I've got the same brain of, as yours. It, it goes around on loops unless I find ways to be calm. Where does that come from? Who is that? And she said, oh, it might be Pop, so her dad. And she told me a story that when he was living here in Melbourne, just up from where we live, in fact, he ran a shoe factory. Now, he was uneducated. He was taken out of school when he was in grade eight or nine because the house needed cleaning regularly and he was put to work for the family. But he always felt like he wasn't good enough, that he didn't have the education, so he didn't deserve to be there. Somehow he got the job to head up this shoe factory and his colleagues, apparently, my auntie tells me, were very well-to-do, quite wealthy, dressed well and, you know, had education behind them. So every day he would wear the same shirts for many days in a row because he didn't have multiple shirts. Nan would iron collars and he would have a new collar each day. They had about 14 different collars that they could put on these old stinky shirts to make them look like a fresh shirt. And she said that every now and then he'd panic because the collar wasn't perfect and he'd Mm. walk out because he'd feel like he was being revealed, that it would show him up as somebody that didn't have any money didn't have any education. Now, I listened to that story and I could relate to that level of panic of things not being good enough, but how interesting that that might just be in my DNA. Yeah. From his story. So how do you pick out those inner narratives and know which one's yours, which one's still relevant? What do you do? It's interesting because I I really think there is a, there is a, connection and and having done a lot of the training that I've done, there's such a connection between generational story and DNA. And now that we're understanding how energy imprints ourselves and can actually change our DNA, even though previously that was thought to be robust, I really think like what you just said, like when you heard that story, it resonated, you knew it to be real. It's actually in your generational lineage. So it more than likely has that in your DNA. And I, I think we can actually change the world through changing stories. Right, you know, so and we we've always been aware of that. I think from an outside perspective, like all of us love music, which is story. We love poetry, which is story. We love jokes, which is story. We love stories, which is story. But I think actually understanding the power of this internal story narrative loop that we've got is where the genesis of changing the world is sitting. Because we do have so many stories internally running that are not even ours. You know, that's right. And you don't know what's running, how long they're running. They're running out of control all the time, and. They're seeping into your body. Yeah. So whether you know it or not, you're thinking, and I'm a, I'm a, a very new part of my life where I'm starting to identify where the thinking is actually affecting my body. Yeah. But every thought is having an impact on how you're feeling. Your body is then responding to that, and pain can become very real in the physical sense from the thinking mm. that created it. And I'm only just now noticing that I'll be be thinking about a, a conference coming up or something I've got to write or, a, you know, something that's it's yet to be done. And I'll just notice my body's contorted yeah, ever so yeah. slightly. So I'm just catching that now and going, what was that connect? Ah, oh, the thought about that conference coming up. Okay. How can I rethink what I'm yeah. doing with yeah. that? Okay. I want that to be easy and fun, relax your body, come back to the work. 
But that's a process. That's true yeah. and clunky to kind of go, what was the thought? How did it affect my body? How do I rewire the thought? How do I release it from my body? How do I create a new intention for this? Yeah. That's all cognitive and conscious and it's nice when you grab it and you miss it more often than not. Yeah, absolutely. And it is complex. We, Like I said, we spend six to eight weeks now with women when we're first working with them to actually unpack the stuff that's happening with the inner narrative. And one of the things we do is we actually do three letters. So we've all heard about, you know, doing a letter to advice to your previous self. Some people do it about, you know, dear future me, but we actually do three together. So it creates the timeline. So one is to your past, one is to your present self, and one is to your future self. Yeah, nice. And when you do them as a complete timeline, the narratives actually very quickly show themselves. It's incredible how powerful it is, but the narrative is very, because we're doing it as a continuum, yes. not as a, like, we can hide behind the narrative loops when we're doing one, like our past or our present or our future. But I'm finding when we run them together, these internal story loops are really showing up. And I'd like to, is it okay if I pressure test some thinking with you? Would that be okay? Oh, because Always. one of the things I'm noticing is, and is that, you know, most women will tell you, women particularly I'm talking about because that's who I work with, most women will tell you that they know that there's something more. They're here to make a difference. They're here to make an impact. And they, well, the women in my world. And what I've noticed because we're going really deep on this internal story at the moment with women is I actually have come to believe that our the strength of our voice, our outer voice, will never outstrip our level of self-trust. And our self-trust is actually governed by the strength of our inner critic, right? So the inner critic takes hold of our level of ability to trust ourselves. And you said before something about stories about trust, mm. right? And so I'm really noticing, like, you know, if we can actually work with the inner critic and get it to quieten down a little, mm. then all of a sudden these women start to self-trust more. That's right. And then they can actually sustainably bring their voice to the world. And so it's just something I'm playing with at the moment. What comes up for you when I talk about that? Well, you just, you want to... You don't want to struggle with the struggle. Yeah. So you want to kind of identify that inner critic and we've all got them and sometimes they're a delight and sometimes they're complete, you know, tormentors. They're yeah. just constant and relentless and we start believing what that inner critic is saying. But at the same time, you don't want to struggle with struggles. A lot of people go, oh, I'm thinking it again. I'm such an idiot, you know, and so now we've got two layers of, difficulty that we're dealing with. And I think you said it in terms of quieting down that inner critic. I think in many ways it's making friends with that inner critic. Yeah, learning how to dance with them. I think I said that to you in our first session, learning to dance with your inner critic. So don't fight them, dance with them. And that means let them in, welcome them, have a dance with them, find out who they are because that inner critic, I believe, is your best friend trying to keep you safe. That's exactly what it is. The inner critic is usually created at a time when you had a response to something where you had to be kept safe. So their intention is love. That's right, always. And so you don't want to punch it. You don't want to go shut up or leave it out the door. I'm I'm sick of you or I'm so – because they go, I'm trying to help you. Yeah. I'm trying to keep you safe. Yeah, Yeah. and so – and the more you go shut up, the louder it gets. Yeah, it's like a five-year-old child (laughs) being told to be quiet. I think that's a great metaphor and I think what does a five-year-old child need when they're overtired is probably a cuddle and lie down, right? Yeah, absolutely. Or, or maybe it's playtime. You know what? We've got to go play right now. Yeah, We're wasting this day. Let's get out and play. So it's making friends with that side of you listening a little bit, going, oh, that was harsh. I used to, you know, feel that negative thought and go, oh, shut up. Now I hear that negative thought and go, thank you, yeah. because now yeah. that, that negative thought is a reminder that I'm looking for something better. I'm looking for yeah. something to make me feel better here and now. Oh, I love that. I love that. So you've completely changed the intention. Yeah, well, there's no point being harsh on my inner critic that's being harsh on me. Yeah. That's fighting fire with fire, right? So I just yeah. need to get remind myself that that inner critic and those that terror voice that's constant, it's always in my brain, yeah. it can be is a reminder, is a beautiful reminder that I want to feel better now. Yeah. Love so that. All I've got to do is notice it and then shift it. Yeah. Notice it, shift. Love that. It's easy. Easy. <laughs> Famous last words. <laughs> it's so easy. It's like you tell me I can be funny. It's so easy. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> so easy. 
It's so easy. Um, I could talk to you for hours, but we're probably going to have to wrap it up in just a moment. But every time I have a conversation with you, there's something really beautiful and wise that comes out of it. So if we actually go the other way, what's the best piece of wisdom or advice that Sarah Love has ever been given? There's power in a pause. <laughs> Not that. There's, although there is. Uh, <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> Maybe that's enough. Maybe yeah. that's enough. It's power in a pause. I, I jumped to a friend of mine and I, I don't think it's relatable broadly, but it was just a beautiful piece of advice at a beautiful moment from a beautiful man. So I had borrowed a friend's car. <laughs> He'd said, don't park it in this part of the city. I parked it there. I came out. It had been stolen. I was beyond mortified, terrified, devastated. If that had happened in my family, it would have been World War Three. Yeah. So just the end of my life, typical, you know, you've done it again, all that kind of stuff. So I come out, I'm just terrified. My shoes were in the car too, so I'm barefoot. I come out, I have a phone, I ring him in tears. He has to say, what's, what's wrong? Are you okay? And I said, I'm okay. I just need to tell you something. And I get it out. I'm so sorry, Al, your car's been stolen. And there's a pause on the other end of the phone. And he said, Zara, I don't worry about anything that can't worry about me. It's a hunk of metal as long as you're okay. I'm okay. Wow. And that, even today I want to cry. Again, I said to you, kindness makes me cry now because in that moment he showed me it was okay to make a mistake. It was okay. I can be forgiven for doing something and even I'm more important than my mistake. Yeah, I love that. Beautiful, right? Yeah. I don't worry about anything that can't worry about me. Yeah, that's right. It's a hunk of metal. So I only care about the people. Yeah. That's all that matters. And the people that are in front of you, and with storytelling, that's what it is. It's caring about the people that are in front of you and giving them what they need in this moment. Not necessarily what they want, but what they need. What they need. I love that so much. Sarah, as always, thank you so much. I love our conversations and I can't wait to hear what everybody takes away from this one. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Jack. An absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Raise 1000 Voices. I hope you've enjoyed the conversation as much as I have. And if you have, then I would love you to subscribe to and rate the show on your favorite platform. Our show notes, resources, and links to all our socials can be found at anygiventuesday.com.au forward slash podcast. And if you'd like to join a growing community of clever, creative, and courageous women who know that they want to be seen, heard, and remembered, then join us in our Facebook group, Raise 1000 Voices. Until we speak again, take care and remember, you were born to raise your voice.